welcome to Politics and Pedagogy Season 2. I'm Madeleine Labordon. And I'm Louise Pears. And in this season, we're thinking about criticality, creativity and care, with today's episode focusing a little bit more on the creativity side of pedagogy. As always, we were joined by some fantastic guests. In this episode, we had Jack Holland, who is our colleague here at Leeds. He's a professor of global security challenges and the director of the Centre for Global Security Challenges. He also is an editor of the British Journal of Politics and International Relations. He's written six books, three are single author monographs, and his most recent book is Syria and Atmosphere, which was published by Cambridge University Press in 2020. He's published over 30 chapters and articles as well, and the most recent article is on narrative and US foreign policy in Syria. That came out last year in International Studies Quarterly. And he wants to note that mainly he spends his time in a sleep-deprived state of early fatherhood, contemplating an Arsenal's inverted fullback system or the latest masterpiece of the television's golden age, which I'd say is a pretty true reflection of him. We were also joined by Mahar Rafiatal, who's a lecturer in global economy at the School of Social and Political Sciences in Glasgow. She takes a political economy approach to the study of corporate power. Her current book project examines corporations as governing authorities, considering corporate social responsibility as a system of rule. And she's also interested in how corporations exercise influence in media and politics and corporate accountability under international law. But in addition to her academic work, she's also an award-winning journalist and the co-founder and executive director of The Public Business, a non-profit that supports reporting, research and discussion about the wider impact of business actions. And her most recent papers are one in Global Perspectives that's Measuring the Wages of Whiteness, a project of political economists, and another piece that came out in 2021 in the Review of International Political Economy, The Janus Faces of Silicon Valley. And she came to speak with us with her colleague, Rhys Crilly, who's also a lecturer in international relations at the University of Glasgow in Scotland. And he's the author of Unparalleled Catastrophe, Life and Death in the Third Nuclear Age, which came out with Manchester University Press last year. And he's a former recipient of the International Studies Association International Communication Section's Best Paper Award. And they joined together because they teach on a popular culture and world politics course together, which has got some really innovative methods. But you'll hear more about that as we get into the episode. Here we've brought together a group of scholars whose work basically I really admire and who I've heard speak about their work and their teaching practices before. And I think there's some really interesting links around how they teach about critical approaches or how you might use pop culture or other creative methods to make the classroom more interesting or more inspiring. On behalf of Madeline and I, I just want to say thank you so much for sparing your time because obviously time is the resource that's in most demand when we're in Demia. So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. This series is about creativity, criticality and care. And I think I wanted to start off talking about creativity or particularly creative practice in your teaching because I know that all of you've used pop culture in different ways in the classroom to do different things so I thought we could start with that so Maha do you want to you want to start so I think that there are kind of two ways to think about creativity in the classroom and I think part of it is about getting the the students to actually be creative at quite a literal level. So in the course that Reese and I teach together here at Glasgow, Culture and Politics, as in a spinal assessment instead of a traditional essay, we have the students actually make works of popular culture, works of art in any medium that they choose that convey some kind of political message. And so it's up to them to choose what it is they're going to make, what kind of political ideas they want to engage, what sort of object they want to present to us. And then they write a short one-pager explaining what it is that they thought they were doing. And so that's a very creative exercise that's closely related to pop culture. But I also use getting students to be creators of you know, artistic media of one form or another in courses of mine that aren't necessarily about pop culture and that aren't otherwise anchored in this kind of more critical constructivist approach to IR. So I teach a master's course that's about corporations, corporate social responsibility, global governance. It's quite a traditional kind of master's IPE course that you might expect, but in part because I have a very international student cohort and traditional forms of written assessment in English can be challenging. I do a lot of live role play and simulations and where we we stage essentially elaborate plays in the classroom to play out certain issues 
in the global economy and think about what interests and values different actors are bringing to a particular issue. And that's sort of the way that I get them to unpack the issue in the classroom. So I tend to use, you know, ways of getting students to think creatively and to express their ideas in forms that aren't traditional writing, not just in my kind of more culture facing teaching, but in this is an audio medium. So listeners will not be able to see this. I'm using scare quotes here, but some of my more kind of hard IR teaching as well. Yeah, that's fab. And I went to see the exhibition that came out of some of those works from the students last year um, when you had it concurrently with Visa up in Glasgow. And I found them really impressive pieces of engagement. Visa, do you want to kind of follow up both on your shared experience from that module, but other things? I'm trying to think of how I came to want to put together a course, not just on pop culture, but a course that had something creative as a final assessment. And I think that was probably because, you know, when you start teaching, you kind of think, okay, I'm teaching these seminars as a PhD student. And it's very much, or at least the way I kind of came to it was like, right, okay, what did you think about the reading? Like, what do you think about all these big ideas? Uh, can you think of examples? And it, it's just kind of, it led to some pretty boring seminars, right? Some pretty like dull, no one wanting to speak, no one really wanting to say anything, kind of just sitting there like awkwardly trying to get people to, to discuss things. And then, you know, have conversations with your peers and you learn a bit more about pedagogy and, and how you should promote active learning in the classroom and I think creativity is a good way into that right it's a good way of like making some pretty complex stuff and also some pretty I guess depressing stuff when it comes to IR when we're looking at war and conflict and gender and masculinity and all these awful things race and colonialism and it's like how do you make these big issues understandable in a way that's accessible for for students and it was creative things that I started doing in the classroom that helped right it was group activities certain role-playing situations like imagine you've got a put together a pitch on on this or like simulations and it was these things that seemed to be a more effective at getting the students to actually talk about what we were meant to be talking about and having like confidence to discuss these things but also you know they seem to to come away from the classroom like happier and they seem to enjoy them the more so when I started doing more creative stuff in the classroom it was like okay well this is productive in a way that just getting people to talk about readings or lectures wasn't. So yeah, that kind of underpinned, I guess, my approach to the course and the way the classroom interaction plays out. But then in terms of the the assessment, I think creativity is a way of giving students some transferable skills. And that was in that was in scare quotes as well. You can't see this on the podcast. But you know, not everyone's going to go and work for the UN or become a politician, which are kind of the two things that everyone says to you when you're studying. Oh, it's like, oh, going to go work for the UN or oh, you're going to be the PM one day. I mean, like, no. And obviously I've gone down the, the boring path of becoming an academic, but, you know, students go out there and become journalists or they work in PR, marketing, become activists or whatever. And I think giving them an opportunity to pursue creative practices is something that, you know, they wouldn't get to do at university on other politics and IR courses. And I guess that's kind of conceptually driven by this turn to pop culture and aesthetics and this recognition that these things that we often consider not to be IR are actually really significant and are a a way of both thinking about world politics differently and kind of critiquing and challenging some of the the status quo stuff that's awful right cool and I think that's where there's like a connection with your work Jack because you've write about the relationship between pop culture and world politics in different ways but have also used pop culture in classrooms to make sense of particular ideas or approach particular ideas so do you want to talk a bit more to that first thing is trained in the context the University of Surrey which had a small student cohort and was really big on kind of critical, innovative pedagogy. Simon Usherwood was foremost amongst those kinds of efforts. He ran things like active learning and political science, big on simulations. So one of his modules I covered was a semester-long simulation, which involved zero teaching for me, which was nice, but was really insightful as to how these things actually actually work. I can remember doing things like zombie apocalypse sessions and things with the students, which I know lots of other people have now tried. The second thing, which is probably a bit more something I've owned, has been video use. So video in a a kind of range of forms, but especially fictional television. Also things like film or current affairs, news clips, those kinds of things. It's interesting how students actually make use of those. So rather than just showing them the stuff, I wondered what they were doing with it. So a couple of publications came out from that. And the kind of biggest headline findings from those two papers were first the best form of video for development of critical evaluative skills is fictional stuff rather than it being kind of news and current affairs clips up that pushes the more 
critical and creative, higher level modes of learning. And the really nice thing was, if you're worried that you show your students something fictional and and repeat it, become little cultural tropes of whatever you've exposed them to, the opposite seems to be the case. So that might be because we train politics and IR students to be critical, or at least they think they have to perform their criticality to do well in their assessments. But the outcome of, of studying then what the students do with this stuff is they move in the opposite direction to the dominant message they've been exposed to, which I didn't expect to find. So that was kind of pleasing, but also as a big footnote, I don't really 100% know what's going on still, and I've never had the time to go back to the research to kind of unpack it further. But the very quick third thing I was going to say, which I've not done much with yet, I'm interested in humour and comedy, but I'm probably a bit nervous about using it too much in teaching. Historically, some of my students, all on their own without any intervention, made memes, which was fun. And I've seen some things like stand-up comedy, there's Bright Club and things like this, which I think are really nice ways to introduce topics in in a kind of critical fashion. And I've gone back to this kind of humour following people like James Brassett's work up in St Andrews recently with lecturers and teaching fellows rather than the students, because I'm not yet brave enough to do this with students. I was getting them to make memes, dissecting international relations theory, because it's a bit dry, right? But if you can if you can make something funny about it, you not only understand it, but you also understand the critiques of it and what's at stake in these kinds of things. It's quite an advanced level thing to be able to make a joke about securitization theory or whatever else you might want to make a joke about. And it worked well for some, and others were kind of too nervous to participate. But yeah, I think there's probably something in there to be explored. So that's kind of a, yeah, there's probably something here, but more, more research needed. Can I just ask like a follow-up question to all of this? Because I just find it really fascinating. Thank you for like sharing these practices because I think they'll be really helpful for, well, for myself, but also for listeners as well. But often with the topics that I come to with teaching broadly around global development and injustice, when it comes to simulations and when it comes to role play, I used to work in non-formal educational spaces and we used to use experiential learning quite a lot, simulations quite a lot, role play quite a lot. And I felt very comfortable within that. And then coming into academia and having read a lot, and maybe this is just the fact that we almost eat ourselves with critically reflecting on ourselves. But I started to really be aware of how uncomfortable some students might feel in those spaces due to their own positionality, due to their own identification for themselves. And I've also seen it done really badly. Like I was teaching, I won't name the university, teaching at university, and we were talking about colonialism. And literally one of the tasks was, one of you has been colonized, one of you is a colonial leader, debate if you should have emancipation or not. Like that was the simulation that they put in place, right? So I don't know, what are your thoughts on that? How do you navigate entrenching problematic role play, if that makes sense, and problematic ideas through the role play and instead use it to challenge the students? The easiest answer on that is that, I mean, there is a good literature on how to run these things and there are good online archives and resources of tried and tested simulations that work where they've actually you know, put that kind of critical thought into making sure there isn't an unintended consequence. I've never seen anything quite that bad, that kind of bluntly wrong. Um, but yeah, ALPS was always really good active learning and political science, but there's also kind of peer-reviewed reports into how simulations work and things. But yeah, I'm too scared to use the comedy, right? Because what if you get the comedy wrong? Like, yeah, it is something I'm nervous about pushing with the students, although I think the potential is there. And I'm just going to throw in the kind of anecdote that I'm not sure I would use something like the zombie apocalypse simulation anymore post-COVID, because simulations like that are really great for getting students to run through to the logical extremes of theoretical arguments and their consequences. And I, I don't think the moment is is ripe for that. You know, students will happily nuke zombies all day to protect whatever other community it is and we just don't need that kind of conversation happening now so it is a contextual political thing right as to what you're running in what moment to, to what purposes and yeah it used to be a really great simulation for thinking through things like pandemics but since we've been through one probably not going to use it for a while yeah Reese and Maha do you have any reflections on that 
I think the answer is often just in how you debrief these things. So I tend not to worry very much about whether the role plays themselves may like end up reenacting things that are problematic. I mean, often if they're going to accurately represent a phenomenon that I'm trying to document in the world, they will. So on my corporations course, I mean, we run a simulation, it's called World Factory. It's based on a wonderful piece of performance art from a couple of years ago, but where you can actually buy the kit to run that yourself as an immersive piece of theater, but I run it in the classroom where, you know, they play factory managers at different points on a garment supply chain. And the incentive structure of the game is designed in such a way that they will commit labor violations, human rights violations. I mean, terrible things will happen in the course of the gameplay. But I play that until there's 20 minutes left in the class. And then we talk about why they happened. So I think there's a lot that you can do in the discussion. And I do think that you said, you know, perhaps we, we eat ourselves with our own criticality. And I think there's something a little bit to that. But I also think that in doing that, we're afraid sometimes of giving our students things that they won't necessarily be able to handle. And because of that, sometimes I think we don't trust them with material that they actually can handle. And so I tend to lean on the side of assuming that they'll go with me. And I would rather try to take them a little bit too far and have it not work out than kind of wrap it in cotton wool for them to begin with. But that tends to be just the direction, I think, in which my pedagogy leads. Thank you. I really like that. And I feel like I'm really learning from it too. So thank you with that. And, and that's what we used to do in the non-formal spaces of make sure we debriefed. And I guess it's having to think about how we can structure that through like a workshop hours and stuff, which is very practical. And again, talks about the restrictions of higher education institutions, right? That they try to restrict you in time as well. You can push back, right? About that sort of thing. So, I mean, that course, because I want to run those and have time to debrief them properly, I give fewer lectures than would be standard. I don't give a weekly lecture on that course. I give a fortnightly lecture so that all of those extra hours can be used to pad every seminar out by an extra half an hour compared to what it would normally be to have time for that. You know, and if you can make a strong case for it in your institution, actually, you will find that they are happy to do that if you can explain what it's for. It's a lot of work and you have to do, you know, you have to argue for it, but that's been absolutely worth it for me. So great. Thank you so much. I guess our next question was moving on to a bit more about this critical and criticality and what that means for you. So I guess, how would you understand approaching criticality in the classroom or how do you see or what do you understand as critical pedagogy? Hey, so I think when we're on this panel at BISA, this roundtable this summer on pop culture and pedagogies of, of teaching world politics, and there was a, a comment from Louise, which has really stuck with me. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's that's my approach to, to teaching. Right. And I, I didn't even realize it. And it was this notion that what we're trying to do is to make the familiar strange or the strange familiar. And I think that's such a good way of summing up this kind of critical approach to pedagogy. Right. It's about working with students to help them either think about what they take for granted in a different way, in a way that is like, oh, yeah, OK, that maybe that is problematic. Maybe these things that I'm you know used to and consuming and take as common sense whether that's like the use of force or whatever like capitalism or empire you know so oh yeah okay these are bad things and they permeate these all these different spaces in different ways and it's about opening that stuff up and getting them to think about the world in a different way and to I guess not take the status quo for granted and think that the world could be otherwise right I think that's what it comes down to for me Pretty sure that's not my quote. Jack, do you know who that's from? It sounds like Foucault to me. <laughs> 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 so that's I've always said that Foucault come up with that book. Maha, do you want to go? I do think this thing about part of making the familiar strange is to open up that possibility for there to be a sense that things could change. And I am a, you know, in international relations academic by training, but I have a dual appointment here in Glasgow in economic history, and I'm also a historian. And I approach a lot of the topics in IR that I teach from a kind of historical lens, right? So yesterday I was lecturing on, you know, kind of global environmental governance and the various COP summits and how the policies have changed over time. And I spend quite a lot of time actually running through that quite chronologically, in part because I think it's history has a way also, I think, of opening up this idea that where we are is contingent on particular choices that were made by particular people at particular moments in time. And when students ask me what that's about, I always say that's about showing you that if certain people had made different decisions at particular moments, we could be somewhere different. 
And that contingency actually does open up possibility for you to insert yourself. I think for me, it's about contingency, I think. And, you know, the sense that a lot can change in a small way. I was also talking about that today with students because we were talking about histographies and the framings of history as well and how that's taught and simply just offering them a way in which they could maybe see the world differently, like you said, is so important with that. Yeah, Jack. So my answer is less cool because I am less cool than the average person who uses pop culture in their teaching. But yeah, it's basically about developing critical informed citizens, which is what Reese and Louise said, but with really boring kind of formal political language. I was thinking as well with that idea of debriefing at the end, like the performance of criticality and stuff. We should really debrief after like standard debates that we make them do because they always choose to occupy a particular position of academic self right that 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 is also a real problem so like I had a really long conversation with some students once who were like really hate it when seminar tutors say like let's play devil's advocate because no one ever says that when you've got skin in the game do they do you know what I mean it's never like oh what if should we just debate whether post-colonialism is a good idea right (laughs) and I was like Mm -hmm. just thinking about yeah the idea of debriefing alongside that idea of of how they perform particular things and how that's rewarded and saying is there a reflection on the way that you do that debate or the person that you're being when you're suggesting that I don't know cosmopolitanism's great and we should all just get along or whatever (laughs) just always pick on cosmopolitanism um but it's a shame there isn't more opportunity for that kind of debriefing or reflection or there isn't time for it is there in the classroom because you've you've got to move on to the next thing yeah it's funny so I'm I'm doing my PG cap at the minute so you know I've been teaching for for what like 10 years now this year and now I'm finally formally doing a course in in how to teach (laughs) and and that's where you know I started doing this introduction to reflective writing and introduction to like reflecting on education and luckily I I think I've been surrounded by people who have done this stuff anyway and that is kind of like there's been some sort of osmosis into me thinking reflectively about my teaching practices but it's kind of mad how we only come to or at least I've only begun to have this opportunity to be really reflective about what I actually do in the classroom, you know, 10 years into the job. And there's a whole bunch of reasons there, like including precarity and moving from job to job and not having the time to pursue this kind of formal training. But to tie that issue back to some of the things we've been talking about earlier, is this issue of what we kind of expect to happen in the classroom and what are the sort of the norms of of things that like go on. And I was thinking here of one of our final assessments, Maha, and the sketch that the students did. So these students did this. So as you said, they got this opportunity for the final assessment to do something creative. And one of our groups wanted to do a like a live action comedy sketch. And it was a product launch of Pilon Tusk, wasn't it? Yeah, space colonization company. And it was very specifically a send up of a genre of media that is like corporate produced launch videos you know, where they tease that something new will be launched, but they don't tell you what it's going to be. And you wait and Tim Cook comes out and announces what Apple is doing next. And they'd done a spoof of one of those meetings. And it, it was it was so good. And clearly the students have got more confidence than, than myself or Jack or, or Maha to, to actually use comedy as, as something they do as part of their practice in IR. But yeah, it was actually really funny. And it, it got such a good response from all the other students in the room. We were just laughing and really enjoying this kind of sketch. And we must have been quite noisy because someone from the room next door came and like banged on the door and came in and was like, I'm trying to teach next door. And the room went like deadly silent. And and then we just had to like continue. And then one of the next things that happens in this sketch is the Pilon Tusk takes someone out of the room and like pretends to kill them. <laughs> and like... There's a protest here. And, and you know, the students are running with this kind of satirical thing and really, I guess, really disrupting what I was expecting them to do, even when I'm expecting them to do something creative. And I think for me, that was like a really memorable kind of critical incident in my like teaching practice. So I guess, yeah, it's hard to know, to tie back to this question you were talking about earlier, Madeline, about how do we make sure we get this stuff right? And like Jack said, you've got to do the reading and try and do this stuff according to best practice. But you have also got to give the students a bit of thread to play with so that they can push the boundaries of what you expect in the classroom. And I, I hope I hope the other students found it as, as memorable as, as Maha and I did, because it, it was amazing. <laughs> but then from this other person's point of view who stormed in, they were, they were very upset with it. So they'd be annoyed about our critical pedagogy, wouldn't they? <laughs> 
they weren't prepared in particular. We were not prepared for the sketch to leave the teaching space, right? I was sort of prepared for there may be some louder performances. I knew some people were going to do music and things like that, that we might have to explain to another instructor within our space. But the protester coming on, which of course is a thing that happens at these corporate events and then needing to be removed by security and that happening kind of off stage in the hallway, you know, that, I mean, I wasn't right prepared for it. But the other thing I think I love about that, that particular like example, and, and which I think was true of many of the projects the students made that really spoke to us was the fact that not only, you know, they'd done this entertaining piece of performance and they had a political point that they wanted to make about space colonization and the environment, but they'd really thought about what specific medium they wanted to make it in. And they had figured out how to replicate certain like formal features of the corporate launch video. This is what the slides at these types of events look like. This is what the music sounds like. This is what the executive wears. That they'd kind of, they'd hit all of these beats. They'd been really thoughtful about that. And so, you know, the ones that really succeeded, they were really smart about how they actually thought about like the formal aspects of the medium. And that's one of the things I think that I I wasn't necessarily prepared for how impactful that was going to be. I think that that's such an amazing example. And I'm so like taken aback by it in the sense that the students too were thinking about the wider context and setting, like you were saying, Maha, like the fact that, you know, so much of, if we're talking about this example of Elon Musk but just the setting of it the fact that there's posters behind it there's a podium like all of those kind of quite like visual effects that when it comes to looking at politics and IR and how important they are in the way in which we kind of uh, express power or hegemony or whatever I think that that's so amazing that students picked up on that so much and and I'm almost annoyed at myself for saying that because I feel like I'm discrediting the students for it. But I don't think I, as an educator, think about that enough. Like I don't observe that enough in my students. And I think that's such like a wonderful example of it. I also think that this is like the new version of The Thick of It. So they should try and commission that too. But yeah, no, thank you so much. That sounds hilarious and brilliant. Yeah, the other thing I was thinking about is teaching like traditional courses and the struggle of it being like, this week we do this topic and this week we do this topic and this week we do this topic. And I've taught, it was actually a module that Jack designed using your textbook, Jack. And I was just thinking about different ways that you can disrupt that. If you want to start with like ways that you and Lee Jarvis tried to do that in your book and then other people like ways you can disrupt that or you've seen it successfully disrupted. So the big pitch for that book which is security and critical introduction. So it's a critical introduction to security studies. To, so that we didn't go realism, liberalism, constructivism all the way through. We structured it through the big questions. What is security? What can we know about security? How should we study security? All the way to things like, is security possible? Is security desirable? Still a big debate on what order those questions should go in, but it stops you yeah, from delivering little black boxed theories of security week week by week. These things have to be more cross-cutting. We still needed to kind of scaffold and help the students with some summary boxes that kind of hint at the the, the traditional academic landscape of security studies, but we tried to kind of disrupt that as much as we could. And you track back and forth across critical and traditional terrain to actually answer the kind of the big questions that get to the heart of what's at stake in this thing called security. I, I quite liked it as an approach. I think the rewards of that are quite high for good students and you have to work a bit harder with the students who struggle more to not lose them. But by and large, I mean, this was second year and by and large, it was it was absolutely fine. And I think, yeah, the, the rewards for middle and top end students are, are quite, quite significant. Security studies landscape, textbook landscape is incredibly crowded though so yeah there's quite a range of critical security introductions out there they're all really good and do it in slightly different ways so i'm um i'm currently putting together the course guide for for the intro to international relations course here at glasgow unfortunately i'm taking over from some people some colleagues who have who have made that course who have brought the critical approaches up front right so when these students who are in their first year and it's the second semester and they're coming to learn learn about international relations there's a couple of topics about what is 
the international, what is international relations and what's sort of the history of the discipline. And then it goes straight into post-colonial theory, then feminist theory, and then has that before your classic kind of realism, liberalism, neorealism, neoliberalism, constructivism, etc. So I think that's, you know, just doing that is a way of kind of making this critical stuff common sense or like normalizing it as a way of thinking about the world, right? Like just having it before you'd have stuff like realism, because I think what you learn at the start is sort of what you think is like the main stuff, right? Or at least that's how I did when I was an undergrad. So yeah, I think that's one way that I'm glad that my colleagues have done it on this course that I'm taking over next year. But I think on our course on pop culture, Maha, this year, one of the ways we've tried to do that with the first assessment, which students have to do, you know, a couple of weeks into the course is it's an essay. So there's two assessments on our course. One is this creative final assessment that they do in groups. And then the, the first one is a student essay. And last year they had a selection of pretty standard questions that they could do. So it's like, why does it matter that the military makes pop culture? You know, how is sport political? And then a few other questions. There's one on Frankenstein from Maha's Week. And then we had like a, a final one, which was basically write an essay on the politics of X when X is some sort of pop culture thing that you're really interested in. And uh, I think I found with that, that the best essays were from the students who wrote about the stuff that they were interested in because they kind of really cared about it. It wasn't on the reading list, so they had to do independent research and find some interesting stuff uh, about whatever they were, were interested in. But then this year, so what we did, we got rid of the, the kind of standard questions and encouraged them all to, to do this more open-ended question. And I think a lot of them have really struggled with it because they've got this freedom to do whatever that they've never really had before on their course. So reflecting on that has been interesting in the one sense that some of them seem to be struggling with it. And they're like, I've had a lot more questions and I don't know about you, Maha, if you have as well, but like students like, can I write about ballet? Can I write about Taylor Swift or the 1975? Is that okay? And we're kind of like, yeah, of course. Like that's, you know, you tell me about the politics of it. And they seem really puzzled at first and then they go away and they feel a lot more like, you know, they come back with like an essay plan like, okay, I'm really excited about this. So I think that's been like an effective way of bringing this critical approach into the classroom, right? By just encouraging them to pursue their own interests and think about them as something that is world politics. I think it kind of relates to something that Jack was saying earlier about trying to find pedagogic approaches that, you know, get something fruitful out of your stronger students who maybe aren't getting much if you're not challenging them, but at the same time that can bring students who are less confident along. And I, so I think that part of what we're seeing with how much more challenging the totally open question formulation has been is that in an environment where there are some set questions that are a little more traditional and then the more open-ended question, it's the students who, not necessarily the strongest students, right? And I don't want to equate, right, strong student with confident student. Those are different things. But the students who feel very confident in their ability to write and organize an essay, like will opt for that open-ended prompt and the students who don't, you know, may opt for the ones that are more structured. And so here, I think one of the reasons we're getting more questions is that we are you know, effectively requiring, right, that bigger reach from students who might not have chosen it for themselves, right? And so that's some of, you know, us figuring out, right, okay, how that's going to work. But yeah, I do think that there's been a little bit more kind of guidance required, but I do think we're going to get, you know, more interesting essays and better ones because they're addressed in the topic. But I also wanted to speak to this question about like teaching you know, critical approaches more broadly and criticality. I'm really going to be interested to see how that course goes, Reese, where you're teaching the, the critical approaches first, because one of the things that I think it can be challenging when you do that, and obviously criticality is not the same thing as critique, and we, you know, and it, which is also not the same thing as criticism, and we explain that to our students all the time. But on the other hand, critical scholarship is often written in response to engagement with and sometimes resistance of some dominant tradition. And sometimes when I've tried to teach those things kind of with the critical approach first, that's difficult for the students because they don't understand what it's in dialogue with. So I, as a graduate student, taught, you know, on a, an African politics kind of broad survey where I was coming in to teach some of the weeks about development and where the structure of that of that module was such that they read the kind of anti-development and post-development critiques of World Bank or IMF policy without actually reading any of the policy, 
or any of the accounts for why it was pursued. And what they wanted to know is why these post-colonial scholars were so angry, because we hadn't actually showed them the object about which they were angry. And when I raised that with, you know, kind of colleagues, like other kind of critical development scholars, the assumption was that if you expose them to more mainstream neoliberal development thinking, like there was a danger that they might be persuaded by it, and therefore it couldn't really be showed. But it was very hard to make the, the critical scholarship stick without, you know, having them kind of read around the object that all of these authors are making reference to. And that's kind of what I mean about you do have to trust them a bit. So I'm kind of curious how that goes, because at least in the development space, there was like a referent object that was in all of the literature, but which we hadn't given them. And that meant that it just didn't work to teach it that way. I think that's such an important point. I, I was teaching on a, a module which we have in our first semester, which is basically looking at like the history of colonialism and how it's come to shape out the world. And a student was like, but why we don't recognize the Haitian revolution in the same way as we recognize the French revolution, right? And he was like, you know, it's interesting though, because then if we're saying to them that, if we're saying to them, is what he said, if we're saying to them that we need to recognize your history, then isn't that just entering into kind of a more dynamic of like us and them and these uh, interdependencies that may be problematic. And I was like, okay, there's, there's so much we could unpack in what you've just said. But what he was trying to push towards was the idea of neocolonialism in his conversation, right? And actually just allowing him the space to find that and then coming to the criticality is exactly what you're talking about. They need to engage with it in a really messy way, probably, And actually, that's then when the criticality comes in, right? Because then we can be like, okay, this isn't about critiquing you. This is about unpacking everything you've just said and thinking about that in a broader context and a broader scholarly conversation as well. So, yeah, thank you. That was such a succinct way of of describing the way in which we, we can approach it and allow for agency as well in their learning too. They're like threads between all that is something about trying to move students away from like the correct answer and also like the neutral, correct scholar person that they write from, which I think is really interesting because in the theories of IR course that we teach that that's a more traditional like layout of week by week by week. Quite interestingly, we do realism and they're like, yeah, yeah, and they're totally on board. <laughs> we spend all the, the, all the rest of the weeks basically circling back on why that's not great. And usually they're like we're into it. The more critical scholarship they find slightly more engaging. But then also when they come to write an essay, it goes immediately back to the language of realism. And it's all like when China met the US in conversation over trade. And I think it's because it's again like, well, I want the right answer. I want to get the right answer or to be that like informed academic. They go back into that position. So it's something about getting them to move away from the idea that there's like a correct answer or that those questions have been answered like what is security and then like when I lecture on that week and I'm like, we don't know you can just see some of them are like oh god like I really would like it if you did know <laughs> so I could write it down so that then I can start my essay with like what it is but yeah that's one of the things I was thinking about um and then the other thing that I wanted to raise was that I was very lucky to take part in most of although I got lost at the beginning the walking tour that you guys did and I think that's a really good link as well between like creative practice and teaching critical kind of perspective so I wondered if you could just talk about that yeah so as part of our pop culture and politics course we we have a week on everyday politics which is the students have to read a short piece by Cynthia Enlow and I think it's in a forum in international political sociology called Monday Matters and I think it's like a really good accessible short introduction to this kind of work and style and, and like general arguments so they read that but then they also have to read so the university of glasgow published a report into how it benefited financially from slavery so that i think came out in 2018 and it was research that the university had done because the glasgow campus that we, we work in today was built in i think 1870 and it, there was a big fundraising drive before building the campus and quite a few of these individuals who contributed money to the university made their money from cotton or tobacco or other industries that were reliant on enslaved labor so yeah the university publishes this report and it finds that i think between 16 and 198 million pounds was raised from 
industries related to the slave trade. So yeah, I think getting the students to read this and the Enlo piece gets them to think about how their everyday spaces, their interactions, you know, the places that they're really familiar with, tied up with these concepts and histories that seem distant in the sense of like historically, but distant in the sense that, okay, like slavery happened out there in the Americas. So it's a, a way of getting them to think, oh, hang on, this stuff matters and it shapes this institution that you're at every day of the year, right? So yeah, to kind of draw this reading out, we then take the students on a walking tour through campus and through a bit of a park, which is next to the university. And we look at, there's a commemorative plaque to enslaved people on campus. There's a viewpoint where you can see out across Glasgow and Maha tells the students about the history of Glasgow and how it built up on the back of several industries like tobacco and, and cotton. And then we go into the park and look at some war memorials and a suffragette oak, which was planted by the suffragettes in 1918. We use each of the sites to kind of open up questions, both about the substance of kind of Glasgow and the university and its relationship to slavery empire and, you know, kind of other political developments over that period. And I think one of the things that's important about that in our kind of local context is it's something that the majority of our, our students on this course are, are Scottish students, and it's a piece of Scotland's history that they won't have had a huge amount of if they've done history in any form at school. So there's like a content right piece of it, but then there's also a kind of method piece of the walking tour that's about right opening them up to thinking about public spaces, urban spaces, architecture, right, as culture in some way and engaging with their everyday spaces that way. But I also think that there's something about just being with the students outside of the classroom and in some different space where we're not standing at the front of the room and they're all sitting in rows. So as the listeners can probably hear, I'm American. At U.S. universities, it's, it's very common that if it's just a nice day, you'll get to class and the professor will be like, it's a nice day. Forget about this. Let's take our books to the park. And you just have class wherever you feel like having class. It's much less bureaucratized than than British universities are. So you wouldn't need to get anybody's permission. You just agree with the students and you just peer off. And I think one of the things about, I think one reason that probably happens less here is that the weather is less frequently congenial for that. But that's a shame. What can you do? But I think that one of the things about that is that when you go and sit in a circle under a tree somewhere together, that the hierarchy of the classroom is completely flattened in a different way. And I think that opens the students up to engaging with us in different ways and I find that there's a real change in the way they engage in the back half of the semester kind of after that. So one of the things I like about it is just that it gets us out of the space. And it's difficult to kind of arrange to do that within these systems, but I think there's real value in that. I also, you know, do movies with them, right? Because we watch a lot of film and media and some of them are longer than what I can show in the class time. So I have these screenings at other times, sometimes in the late afternoon or the early evening. And those are also really different environments because it isn't a classroom but they're coming to watch a movie. So they bring their snacks and they bring, you know, some of them are knitting sweaters or they're doing other crafting while they're sitting there. And it's a very like kind of convivial environment that they wouldn't normally have with an instructor that I think also sort of changes the dynamic. And I think that can be productive to them wanting to engage. Yeah. And I should probably add the walking tour isn't like a, it's not like me and Maha are the authoritative guides taking the students around and lecturing them about all of this history for like an hour it's you know it's quite interactive and a lot of it is you know we'll get to one of the sites and kind of say hey here's the background to this here's why we're going to talk about it what do you all think and yeah the students often have quite a lot to say I found especially this year they were talking about their own kind of knowledge of so that we go to a war memorial the Highland Infantry who who died in the, the South African war the Second Boer War and it's really interesting getting them to to talk about that and what they know already about it and what they kind of don't know and then kind of move on to talk about the politics of statues in general and which is something that a lot of them have opinions about especially since the Black Lives Matter protests and, and what happened with the uh, statue of Colston in Bristol for example. So yeah I think I agree with Mahan so it's, it's really important to kind of get out of the classroom space and to find out what the students think about the sites that they inhibit every day. I love that so much because it really connects to the idea of informal learning and the learning in the everyday, right? And that those are spaces for really like aff affective learning and that by connecting with that, often what I find with students is I'll ask them like what have they experienced in their everyday where uh, that links to maybe part of their learning, but actually sometimes they struggle with that. Sometimes they struggle with thinking about 
them in the same breath but actually what you're doing there is kind of connecting them through through that work and that like effective work as well so yeah thank you I'm really good that I missed that because I wasn't the visa so next time I'm up <laughs> yeah Madeline knows that I've like become obsessed with a walking tour everyday security jack so you're gonna have to hear about that <laughs> as well but yeah. was there anything from some of that that you want to reflect on Jack so it sounds fantastic. It's really, really good. I've only known it done in other disciplines, really. So the geographers do it a bit, the kind of reading the landscape sort of stuff and imperial geographies. But yeah, I don't know of anyone else in IR doing it. You guys probably do, but yeah, that's, that sounds really fantastic. I'm now racking my brains as to what it would look like in Leeds. So we heard someone talking about doing it, looking at security architecture in London. Um, so they walked on like the banks of the Thames, wasn't it, Madeline? And walk past an embassy and look at the way that the benches are actually positioned in order to stop a direct attack or walk past the mayor's office where obviously that seems like public space but it isn't it's got security guards but more explicitly exploring the way your everyday spaces are securitized but there's lots of different ways into it that you could look at the relationship and make people think about it um i want to be in the emirates stadium because even like the words asked are actually big like concrete blocks to stop vehicles getting too close to the stadium things like that the whole thing is it's constructed in the era of supreme sort of counter-terrorism architecture. And I'd get to be at <laughs> I always tell everyone about the, the rumour that, and I think it's a myth. So our lecture block here at Leeds is really odd that it's like all staircases and you enter into the lecture block on the level that you sit on. So there's like doors for every level that you sit on rather than entering and then going to find a seat. It was built in the 70s and there's a rumour that it was built because there's no flat space, so you can't occupy the building because there's no place that you could occupy. But I, I often tell students about that. Because I just used to do the tour that was like, come to Leeds. <laughs> you could see the people I'm supposed to be telling them, like, this is the student union, it's great. And I'm like, what's a rumour this was built to stop protest? But yeah, I think it's a really fascinating way of doing it. And also, yeah, that just the physical act of walking around as well. There's, there's something really interesting about that as well, isn't there? I was going to say, Leeds, I bet you have really interesting industrial history. Yes. Right. That's the that's kind of the walking tour that if I were doing one in Leeds. Right. I bet you've got, you know, garment factories, industrial disasters, workers, housing. That's the walking tour that I would do if I were doing Leeds. I don't think I I know anybody else who's doing it in IR as a pedagogic thing. But I was at a conference in Sheffield a few years ago where, you know, as a lunchtime break in the conference, the organizers of that conference, the Sheffield Political Economy Research Institute, they had arranged for us to have a walking tour that was a political economy history of Sheffield walking tour, right? Where we went to, you know, kind of key sites. We're thinking about the history of the minor strikes and kind of workers' housing and where protests had taken place. And the, you know, the former Sheffield headquarters of the National Union of Mine Workers is now an all bar one. The old mills are now, you know, very hipster, exposed brick kind of housing. It was a really kind of like a very, very surreal kind of experience of walking through the city and seeing what had changed. And I thought that was wonderful. That's certainly probably a a piece of inspiration that came into this. And the, that tour was led by the incredible Andrew Gamble, who's very brilliant. But I remember thinking that that was such a wonderful thing to do with scholars that probably fed into this exercise. So then the final theme that we're trying to think about in this series is the idea of care and how that takes a place. And I guess for a lot of the things that we've talked about in this podcast, they're quite confronting or they're asking students to reflect back on their own implication in things that they might not previously have thought about so maybe you want to talk about care and how that might link into creativity and critical stuff yeah I think it's a really interesting question about how care comes into my teaching and and what I do and I, I hadn't really thought about it before but I think ultimately the generation of students nowadays have got it particularly hard right like in terms of in England especially paying so much to be at university you know, the cost of living crisis, a climate crisis, and this sort of sense of existential dread that we all have in this Anthropocene era, right? So I think my kind of care comes into what I do in a sense that I want to try and help them think about the world in a different way so that they can imagine it getting better, if that makes sense. It's about like, not just education, not as doom scrolling, which I think it could often be when you do IR, but education as a, giving you the tools to make sense of what's happening 
in the world around you and thinking about how and why everything's so bad, but then giving students the tools to think about how it could be otherwise and how it could be better. I think that's kind of how care comes into the broad, big picture stuff that I see myself doing when I teach. But then just on like a personal level, right? There's like a caring for your students and respecting them as people, not viewing them as students who you want to kind of impart your wisdom on, but as fellow human beings and travelers on this mad journey that we're all on and just like in how you interact with them in how you act in the classroom and in lectures and how you're approachable just being being nice I think can often go a long way when we're in the neoliberal higher education sector right because institutions don't really care for people but if you're a person within an institution who interacts with students you can care for them yeah, I think that's great. I'm also obsessed with the phrase education not doom scrolling. <laughs> so good. good <laughs> yeah, it's such a good answer title. <laughs> yeah, does that prompt anything from either you, Jack, or you, Maha, about care? I can tell a funny anecdote, which doesn't help. Dreamy, yeah. It's, it's I mean, so I do care about my students, <laughs> but it's possible to get things wrong. Um, so I once gave a lecture on 9-11 several years ago a bit nearer to 9-11 and about halfway through the lecture I noticed that a student halfway up the large lecture did look really upset and I was really worried on what have I said as you know she personally connects to 9-11 blah 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 tried to get through the lecture at the end as subtly as a lecturer can walk up the stairs to go and speak to her to check that she's all right because I was worried she was in floods of tears. Turned out she had eczema, really bad eczema, wasn't crying at all, and I'd massively humiliated her in front of 200 people in the lecture theatre. So currently your, your misplaced care can go horribly wrong in front of one of their peers. I guess the only more serious point I'd add to that is there used to be student support advisory of Surrey, and it's amazing how much stuff students are facing in such a range of different contexts, and that was quite a, an eye-opening role, and I think... It was the first kind of big admin role I've had. I didn't have any administrative staff support for this, so it was given to the youngest academic there, basically, to kind of handle this stuff. And it just, it was useful, I guess, because it does mean every time I go into a seminar room or whatever, I have in the back of my head the range of issues that students were facing that were far more significant than things that I had faced up until that point. So I guess just keeping that kind of thing in mind is useful in in your teaching. Thank you. I think that that's just like really wonderful way to end in thinking about care and how we can also care for each other in those moments as well as Louise has seen when I am worrying about how much or how little I'm caring and then there's somebody else there that also cares. So thank you so much, Reese, Maha and Jack. It's been such a wonderful conversation and for spending so much time with us as well in doing this. Well, I think you agree, Louise, that was such a brilliant conversation to think about creativity through the lens of criticality and to have different perspectives from across the UK, from Glasgow and here within Leeds as well. I really look forward to our next conversation where we're going to be thinking a little bit more about care. But inevitably, as always with these conversations, creativity and criticality also interlink. Thanks for listening, everyone.